morning we continue our series, Alone. Last week we talked about Scripture alone. This morning we'll deal with the subject of grace alone. Those lacking a theological background tend to have the idea that grace is simply a divine feeling, a a decision or tendency in God uh, to overlook sin. Uh, Something like what an overindulgent parent might do for a disobedient child. For some, grace seems to be nothing more than God turning a blind eye to our sin and rebellion. It was as if grace were a free pass for us to do whatever it is that we desire. May you know that grace is God's answer to our sin and to our rebellion. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. In fact, He tackles the issue head on through the person and the work of His one and only Son. I hope that you understand that the Bible always connects grace with Christ. Uh, To talk about grace is to talk about Jesus. Grace is the very heart of the Gospel. Grace touches the very depths of human existence because it reveals the heart and the character of our God. The heart and the character that reveals that our God is willing to draw us back into a relationship with Him, into a a relationship that was uh, tragically damaged as a result of our sin and our own rebellion. So last week, we worked through the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. And this week, we're going to be working through grace alone, or or sola gratia. Uh, Last week in scripture alone, we realized that the word of God is our ultimate authority. It is our sufficient authority. Authority. It is the inerrant authority. There is enough in the Word of God. God has given us everything that we need to know in order to enter into a relationship with Him and to live a life of obedience towards Him. So the Word of God is sufficient for both faith and practice. And the doctrine of grace alone is deeply rooted in the Word of God. Therefore, it is imperative that we look at this concept of grace uh, from a biblical perspective. May you know that that grace is mentioned more than 150 times in the Old and New Testament. Grace saturates the Word of God. And so there's, there's no other important teaching, I think, that helps us to understand God and His relationship with mankind than there is the teaching of the doctrine of grace. And so this morning, let's begin by defining what grace is. Grace is most commonly referred to as God's unmerited favor. I think that's a beautiful definition of grace. God, God's unmerited favor bestowed upon man, which means that man did nothing to deserve the favor of God to which he extends unto them. When you describe grace as God's unmerited favor, there is a tendency, and I think rightfully so, to make further distinctions about his unmerited favor. Because the grace of God is extended in some ways to all of mankind, and then the grace of God is also specifically extended to a a, a few, uh, his chosen people, his, his children, those that have been born of God. 
so there, there's this uh, tendency to give this distinction called common grace or, uh, versus special grace or salvific grace. The, the word common grace would be God's unmerited but non-salvific favor. That word salvific means pertaining to salvation, okay? So, so common grace is, is God's unmerited but non-salvific favor that he extends towards his creation. It's common grace that restrains evil. It's common grace that allows a, a fallen world to, to flourish, in fact, the Word of God says in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse number 45, Jesus says that God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. And He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there is, in a sense, uh, the, uh, the reality that all of creation experiences the common grace of God. But then there's also a special grace. Special grace would be God's unmerited but salvific favor that, that is given and extended to those that submit their lives unto His Son. Special grace refers to, to the grace by which God redeems us, the grace by which He justifies us, the grace by which He sanctifies us, and, and the grace by which one day He will glorify us. It's important to note that we in and of ourselves have done nothing, nor can we do anything that would deserve the grace of God. Romans chapter 10 says that, uh, in beginning in verse number 10, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So being fundamentally unacceptable unto God, uh, it's right for us to ask along with the disciples who ask, then, then, then what can we do? Or how, how can someone become saved? How can someone be in a right relationship with the Father? And Jesus, in response to the question from his disciples, says in Luke chapter 18, verse number 27, Jesus says, what is impossible for men is possible with God. May you know that salvation is God's work because God is the one that gives the grace that we need. So our saving grace is Christ himself. His work on the cross is what saves us, not our work. Because we can never do the right kind of work to, to deserve the grace that is extended from God. So while grace is God's unmerited favor extended towards man, grace is more than just that. Grace is also the outward working of God's unmerited favor in the lives of those that believe or in the life of the church. So God not only saves us from our sins, he also matures us in our faith, and He uses us to bring Him glory, and both of which are ultimately the result of God's gracious work in our lives. So grace is actively and continually at work in the lives of God's children. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse number 10, Paul credits the success of his ministry not because of his own achievements, 
but because of the grace of God. He, he says in, in verse number 10, uh, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, Paul's work is, is not really his work at all. It was the grace of God at work in Paul's life and through Paul's life. So grace is the ongoing, benevolent act of God at work in the lives of his children. I want you to consider real quickly a few verses that deal with the grace of God. The first one comes in Romans chapter 5. In verse number 20, it says that the law came in so that the transgression so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then the Word of God says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 14, it says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Let me give you one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 15, says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what is this indescribable gift? Well, in verse number 14, it's the surpassing grace that God has given unto us. So in these three passages of Scripture, we see that grace is greater than our sin. We see that grace is more abundant than we expect. And we also see that grace is too wonderful for our words. So as recipients of God's grace, we are called, commanded, and expected to be gracious to others. Grace is given to us so that we might serve one another and that we might exercise our spiritual gifts for the building up of His church. That's why it says in Romans chapter 12, verse number 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. What a beautiful verse. We have differing gifts. And, and, and how are these differing gifts distributed? Well, in accordance to the grace of God. So with that verse, let me just pause real quick. Let me ask you just to consider and to answer. What is the gift that the grace of God has given to you? What is that gift? The word promise you, if you belong to him, that God has graciously given you a gift. What is the gift? Not only that, how are you currently using that gift for the building up of the body and for glorifying the Father? I mean, he goes on. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 10. It says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as a child of God, you've been given a spiritual gift that is to be used for his glory and for the building up of the kingdom of God. So the question becomes, as his child, how are you using the gift that he has graciously given to you? Are you using that gift? for his glory, and for his sake. So, so quickly, let me just recap. Just at the very beginning. Grace is God's unmerited favor given to us. 
There's a common grace that has been extended to all of creation. And then there's this special grace that has been extended only to those who believe in Jesus. And so while grace is God's unmerited favor to us, it doesn't stop there. Because grace is also the outward working of God's unmerited favor in the lives of His children and in the life of the church. These two definitions of grace are intimately connected together. It is because we are saved by grace that grace then works in us and through us so that God's purpose and will will be accomplished among us. So let me try to paint a mental picture of the grace of God. I mean, we know that, that, that we have a loving Father who is holy and righteous and perfect all in one. But then he's faced with the rebellion of his children. And the loving father's response is that he has a desire to, to bring his children back into a proper fellowship with him. Yet his holiness cannot allow our sin to go unaddressed. If God allowed our sin, our unholy rejection of him, if he allowed our sin to stand, then that would contradict his nature. In fact, that would compromise his divine character. So therefore, God has to have an answer or a response to our unholiness. And his answer is grace. Grace is action on behalf of God. Grace is motivated by love. It's shaped by holiness. Grace takes into account the seriousness of our sin, yet grace desires to bring sinners back into a proper relationship with the Father. I mean, look at it this way. If the world never existed, or if mankind never fell from, because of sin, then God could not have been said to be gracious. I mean, think about that. Some people, and I think rightfully so, refer to grace as a relational attribute of God. In other words, grace only exists in relation to something or someone other than God. And so it's a relational characteristic of our Father. In Exodus chapter 34, there we see Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God is renewing his covenant with his people And beginning in verse number 5, it says that the Lord descended in the clouds and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. If you have the English Standard Version, yours says merciful and gracious. It's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Verse 7 says, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Here, the Lord describes himself as both merciful and gracious. Mercy and, and grace are our beautiful concepts and realities about our Father, but mercy and grace are often confused. While the words have 
similar meetings, mercy and grace are not the same thing. I mean, to summarize the difference, it would be, uh, say, mercy is God not punishing us because our sins deserve it. So him withholding that punishment is his mercy. Grace is God blessing us despite the fact that we don't deserve his blessing. Another way to look at it is mercy is deliverance from God's judgment, whereas grace is God extending kindness to those who don't deserve that kindness. Uh, but notice the reason why, why God describes himself as gracious and, and merciful. We'll go back to Exodus. If we look back at verse number 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate or merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then we get to the meat of the matter in verse number 7. It says, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands? And then it says, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So in, in, in the face of human rebellion, in the face of sin, the Lord chooses not to exact justice upon us at that very moment. Although he's certainly entitled to do so. Instead, he chooses to be gracious and merciful. In other words, he, he, he chose to show unmerited favor towards those who do not deserve it. Here in Exodus chapter 34, God reminds Moses and he reminds all of us that he is a God of mercy and a God of grace. God's merciful grace is seen throughout the scriptures from the very beginning of the word of God. His merciful grace is seen in the, in the fact in how he responds to Adam and Eve in their sin. His merciful grace is, see, is seen how he, he doesn't just strike them dead at the moment of their sin. His merciful grace is seen throughout the exodus as the children of Israel constantly rebel and disobey God. God still provides a means for them to continue the grace of God is constantly on display through the Word of God. Earlier this year, on Wednesday night, we did a series through the book of Jonah. In fact, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. God gives Jonah a very specific command to go and to preach a, a message of repentance to the very adversaries of, of Jonah and his people, to their enemy. So when God commands Jonah to take a message of repentance to Nineveh, Jonah doesn't like the assignment because Jonah hates the Ninevites. So Jonah would rather live in outright rebellion to God and refrain from speaking a word of repentance to his enemy than he would like to walk in obedience to God. And so he rebels against the Father. And so after directly rebelling against God and his experience as he tries to flee and getting thrown overboard and in the belly of the giant fish and then being vomited up on dry land, after all of that, 
Jonah reluctantly agrees to carry out the assignment and the commands of God. And as a result, the Ninevites repent. The Ninevites hear Jonah's half-hearted message, and they respond to it with repentance. And Jonah's response, instead of celebrating what has happened, Jonah's response was to get angry at God. Here, here Nineveh goes from being a powerful, arrogant, wicked nation to becoming a, a place of massive mourning. They actually turn from their wickedness and they begin to do what is right. The Ninevites demonstrate the greatest example we see in Scripture of corporate regret. It says in, in Jonah chapter 3, verse number 10, and it speaks of God's mercy here. It says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, how amazing is that? These people were so vile and so wicked that God actually saw them and said that it would be best for him to wipe them off the planet. And so he goes and he sends a prophet to give a message of repentance. And the people repent. And God's response to all of that, the people are showing true remorse. And they, they stop their evil ways and they begin to do what's right. And so God's response is to not bring the judgment that he had proclaimed that he would. And that's where the story picks up in chapter 4. So follow along as I read in chapter 4. It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And the picture, Jonah is still holding out hope that God is going to bring destruction upon the Ninevites. And so verse 6 says, So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from this, his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know the difference between their right hand and left? 
as well as many animals. Notice, so instead of celebrating the, the amazing display of repentance, as the Lord turns from his anger in chapter 3, Jonah is turning to his anger in chapter 4. And this isn't some mild irritation or frustration. Jonah has rage in his heart directed towards God about Ninevites. So it's one thing for us to cry out against God or to God when troubles come our way. But this is different. Jonah is crying out because God has withheld his wrath and his judgment. Jonah is angry because God displayed mercy and grace. Look at verse number 2. I bet you never thought you would see the words of verse number 2 spoken in anger. It says, please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Those statements about God that are spoken in this prayer is not a compliment from Jonah. It is a complaint. In Jonah's mind, these people deserve to be destroyed. Jonah can't get beyond the fact that the the Ninevites were a cruel and ruthless people. Jonah was only interested in seeing them receive the judgment from God. And the truth is, they did deserve judgment. But Jonah is saying that as though he himself didn't deserve judgment. The judgment from God. And Jonah is extremely fortunate that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant in love and kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I mean, Jonah is a prophet who knows the the word of God, who proclaims the righteousness of God to the nations, and yet Jonah spends all of chapter 1 in outright rebellion to God. I mean, the, the Ninevites might have been undeserving of God's grace and mercy, but so is Jonah, and so are each and every one of us. Jonah's complaint and frustration is ironic. He knew that God would do this. He knew the very character and nature of God because he understood Exodus 34, verse 6. Where God is proclaimed to be a gracious and merciful God. And that's the irony. It is because of God's grace that Jonah can have a relationship with him. And so what what Jonah took for granted for himself, he willingly begrudged that for other people. Seeing the grace of God displayed in his God's response to the Ninevites was more than what Jonah could take. I mean, look at the words that he says. He'd rather be dead than to see them receive grace and mercy from God. Jonah's reaction is so ugly, vile, and offensive. Why? I think it's because God's grace is so beautiful. The story of Jonah is not so much about Jonah's bitterness and hatred as it is about the glorious grace of God on display. 
may you know that the supreme manifestation of the grace of God is seen in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us in Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse number 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Verse 11 declares that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So if grace is God's unmerited favor, then the advent of the Son of God coming to the world in human flesh, I believe, is the greatest act of God's grace. It it doesn't get any more beautiful than that. Jesus is the incarnation of the grace of God. In other words, Jesus is grace personified. And this truth lays the foundation for the biblical understanding that salvation is by grace alone. Paul firmly understands this reality. In the letter to the Romans, Paul declares that life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus are the culmination of God's gracious plan of redemption. Not only that, Paul says that it is the means by which he himself has received grace. He writes in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. So so Paul then goes on to say that we obtain grace only through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God beautiful we are saved by grace and by grace alone and so we are saved by god's unmerited favor revealed and accomplished in and through jesus christ his son that's why it says in ephesians chapter 2 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So the truth of the matter is that because of our sin, we are morally 
spiritually dead, separated from God. Paul, Paul captures that idea when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, that we are all dead in our transgressions and sins. Now when he says that we're all dead, obviously he's not speaking that we are all physically dead. That's not the death that, that Paul is, is addressing here. He, what he's saying is that the life of a person, who, the life of the person who has not experienced new life in Christ is characterized as being spiritually dead. So that person is separated because they're spiritually dead. They're separated from God's salvation. It's impossible for the spiritually dead to do anything about their circumstance because they're dead. I don't know if you know this or not, but dead people can't do anything. Impossible. So for the spiritually dead, a a mere pep talk or life coach is not going to help their circumstance. For the dead, the only hope they have is in a resurrection. And so resurrection power comes from the outside of an individual, not from the inside of a person. And consider Lazarus as a beautiful example of this spiritual truth. If you don't know his story, you can read about it in John chapter 11. Lazarus was dead in the grave, in the tomb. Lazarus could do nothing to help himself. Lazarus could, could not cooperate in the process of his resurrection because Lazarus was dead. Dead people can't do anything. It was only because of divine intervention that Lazarus was brought from death unto life. I think Lazarus serves as a beautiful picture of the paradigm of the grace of God. We are all like Lazarus. Dead in our sin and in our trespass. Dead and incapable of doing anything to move us closer to the heart of God. The only hope that we have as dead people is for a resurrection power, divine intervention in our lives. The only hope that we have is hope that comes from the outside, the grace of God. Comes from the outside, not from the inside. Because we're dead, we can't do anything about that. We need divine intervention, and that is referred to as the grace of God. It is the grace of God that saves us. And to go even further, it is the grace of God that empowers and enables us to glorify Him. It is God's grace that he has given to each and every one of his children a gift to be used for his glory. How he determines to whom receives what spiritual gift, and that is based upon his multi-level grace. He graciously makes those determinations and those decisions. But not one of his children has not, there's not one child of God that has not received by the grace of God a gift that is to be used for the glory of God. So if we belong to him, 
then we must honor him and serve him faithfully. In closing, I want to wrap up with a beautiful quote that R.C. Sproul has when it comes to this concept. He says, perhaps uh, the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to, re- to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we'll go to heaven because we deserve to be there. Not one of us deserves to be there. Thank God for his merciful grace. My prayer is that, is that each and every one of us has been the benefit, benefactor of God's merciful grace. If you have received God's grace into your life, then be an instrument and a means of grace to other people. Know that God has graciously gifted you with something to be used for his glory and be faithful in service unto him for that purpose. What is your gift? Know what it is. How are you using it? Have a plan. Have a, have, have a goal. If you can't determine it for yourself, I would say, not to be too harsh to you, it's probably because you just haven't spent enough time before the Father seeking it. Let that one sit in. The will of God isn't a, a great mystery, one that he sits in heaven and just withholds or holds on tightly and makes you beg and borrow and, and, and really struggle to discover. No. The, the will of God is plainly revealed to us in the Word of God. And so if you're struggling to understand what your gift is or or how you're supposed to use it, my word of encouragement to you is to get into the Word of God because knowing the Word of God will reveal His will. And knowing His will, then you can have a better purpose and understanding of what you're supposed to do in order to walk in faithful obedience to Him. And even if you've been reading His Word and praying over and just can't figure it out, man, I know that we have a church staff that would love nothing more than to be able to sit down and have deep conversations with you to help you to discover what that plan and purpose is for your life. But know this, as long as you're here and as long as you're drawing breath and as long as you're a child of God, then God has a purpose for your existence not just about you. May God use each and every one of us to be used for His glory. May we love each other. May we encourage each other. May we support each other. May we cry with each other. May we make sacrifices on behalf of one another. May we do whatever it is that God has called us to do. And may we be found nothing less than totally faithful and committed in the process. Thank God for his grace. Next week, we'll discover faith alone. So I pray that you'll begin to to really reflect upon these doctrinal truths and that God would encourage you in the process. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. I thank you that you would choose to extend grace to us 
and we don't deserve any of it. God, forgive us of being prideful. Forgive us of being too much like Jonah, picking and choosing whom we think should hear the good news, making our own decisions and determinations about other people and their worth, and we have no right to do so, Father. May we love all people. May we love all people enough to be willing to tell them the good news. So God, I pray that you would continue to work within this body of believers, encouraging us, equipping us, strengthening us, that we might be found faithful in our service to you. God, we thank you for your word that you have breathed out for us. Help us to put the high value of your word that it deserves. May we turn to it and rest upon it for our ultimate authority and for your grace. Father, forgive us for being ungraceful to other people. And I pray that your spirit would continue to move and walk among us, Father, guiding and directing us. And for the spiritual dead that are among us or listening or watching to us, oh, Father, I pray that a divine intervention would occur in their life, that they might receive that resurrection power from your spirit. God, help us. May we love you more today than we even thought possible. And may we continue to grow in that love. We ask your blessings upon us as we go from this place be with our conversations and our interactions with all people. May we be mindful that this is not our home. We're just passing through. May we not be too attached to this place. But may our true treasure and heart and desire be to be with you forever. Thank you for this life. Thank you for the opportunities that you give to us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.